And uh, before we get into 2 John today, which we will in just a minute, I want to say thank you to all of you who have been uh, giving to the church this year. At the end of the year, we always do more thank yous, and this is Thanksgiving weekend, so a big thank you for all of you who are regular givers. Thank you. And again, this week, it turns out, is one of the biggest giving weeks of the year because it's Giving Tuesday in a couple of days. And so many of you have already given something in terms of an extra gift that many give at the end of the year. Elizabeth and I have already done that as well. So thank you to you. And if you would like to give a special gift by the end of the year, thank you for doing that. If you want to do it in other ways like stocks or other um, type of currencies, Rather than just cash, we'd love to help you in doing that. And there's many ways to give, and people in the back can help you with that. I brought uh, some old things with me because some people go, why don't you pass the plate anymore? Remember this? Now, if you're new to our church, you don't even know what this is because this is what we used from 1950 to about four years ago. This was the type of plate we used. It was the kind that would... You know, when you passed it, you could hear it going by because everybody's rings and things would go by and you'd pass it. And we would do this. And it was a part of giving our offering during church, during worship. And then we smartened up a little and quieted it down. And we started using these baskets a couple of years ago. And so that you wouldn't hear it and we could get more baskets because those were expensive. These were cheap. So we got baskets for every row. So you just pass it once and people would collect it and all the rest. But then COVID came. Well, actually two things came. COVID came, but also electronic giving came. And how many of you give electronically in some way? Raise your hand. We love you, thank you. And giving started to come using this. If you've never done this, it's real easy to do it. You don't have to do it on your phone. You can do it on your iPad or on your computer, any other device you have. But you can go to our app at the bottom. There's a thing that says give, push the give button. And it's not a button, it's a little icon. You push it and you can go right away. Or you can go to our website and just go to bocacommunity.org slash give and it gives you all the opportunities and all the ways to give. And so what has happened is, over 50% of you give that way. Some on a recurring every week basis, some of you give once a month, once a quarter, whatever's appropriate in your own giving um, cycle, and we appreciate that. But the other thing we have, and many of you don't even see them because they're invisible to you, is we have offering boxes as well. They're bigger than this, but we have them at every exit. Some are as big as four feet tall, some are small, but these are here too. So if you would like to give, and I don't say this pejoratively, but the old-fashioned way, if you'd like to put a check in or cash, there's envelopes beside it. We'll take it any way you want to give it. But we've made a decision, at least for now, not to go back to passing the offering baskets because so many of us give online. It's like, you're, do I give now? But I gave on Monday. And you know what? We want you to give when it's appropriate for you. The Bible talks about first fruits, so you say, shouldn't we be giving in church? Well, that's a very modern thing. The Bible talks about first fruits. So Elizabeth and I do our tithing the day we get paid, which is like 
you know, every two weeks we get paid. And so we give our, if that's a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Friday, we give that day. So we do our act of worship as a first fruits act of worship. You choose any way you would like to give. We're here to help you in that way. And if you wanna give um, the old fashioned way, analog with cash or checks, we're very happy to take that. You can mail it in, you can walk it in, or you can do it electronically. All I wanna say today is thank you for doing it. This ministry is 100% supported by you all, by all of us. We have no endowment. We have no big bank accounts, none of that. It's just the ties and the offerings of you through the years have supported this church, has supported our missionaries, supported our ministries, and we just keep doing that because that's what a local church does, isn't it? So you as our members, our guests, our regular attenders, those of you online especially would appreciate the uh, way to give online and you can go to that as well uh, and do it anyway. And again, if you have any questions, just call us or go to the table in the back and we're happy to help. So today I'm gonna invite Elizabeth to come up and she's gonna read so that I can save part of my voice. We're in 2 John and what we've been doing is a series called, there it is, Small Books, Big Ideas. If you're back or you haven't been around the last couple of weeks, there are five one-chapter short books in the Bible, and they tend to be books that we don't study because they're short. And usually I like to take a long book and study it. So we studied Obadiah, and who really cares about Obadiah? But after you study it, you go, there is some things in there. And then last week we studied Philemon, which was excellent. Today, we're gonna look at 2 John. That's at the end. It's, if you're new to the Bible, grab one in the front of your um, pew there. And if you don't own a Bible, take it with you. We're glad to give away Bibles. If you own a Bible and you didn't bring it, just borrow it for the day and put it back in. But it's 2 John, it's at the very end. So last book is Revelation, then Jude, then 3 John, then 2 John. So next week we'll do 3 John, the following week we'll do Jude. So those three short books at the end, just before the book of the Revelation. So Elizabeth, lead us in reading. Absolutely. Good morning, church family, and join me in the book of 2 John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us, and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. 
If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked deeds. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Thank you, Elizabeth. We've been talking about a big idea in each of these books. I'd like to give you the big idea in 2 John. It seems very simple, but it's not. Let's read it. It's love one another, and this is love that we walk in the truth. Love one another, and this is love that we walk in the truth. Now, you go... Every time we read anything from John, it's about love, right? The Gospel of John says, a new commandment I give to you to love one another. The first epistle of John is all about love. And the second epistle seems to be all about love. But let me tell you, of all the books in the Bible, there's 66 books in the Bible, this book is one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible. And you go, how can that be? It's pretty straightforward. Walk in love, walk in truth, obey the commandments. This is pretty straightforward stuff. Either you do it or you don't, but at least it's not too hard to understand. But contextually, that means in context, it is one of the most difficult books to understand. Let me give you the context of this. And in understanding this, let me share a story first. A couple weeks ago, I was reading about the Vietnam War. Let me ask... Many of you are first generation in the United States, so you've come after the Vietnam, and many of you, most of you in this room, were born after the Vietnam War was over, but how many were alive in the United States during the Vietnam War? Raise your hand. Now, put your hands down. How many of you were in the services during the Vietnam War? Raise your hand. Thank you very much. And I say thank you to them and not just to our veterans of Korea and Afghanistan and Kuwait and Iran and Iraq and all these places because this was a war that was misunderstood by everyone. This was a war that uh, polarized our nation. And as I was reading about it, it reminded me of a time in 1982 or 83, the war memorial, the Vietnam War Memorial was put up. And it was controversial because everybody wanted to forget this war. Everybody was okay with remembering at that point World War II, Korea. At that point, those were the two major wars that people were living. And then came Vietnam. And if I can use this word with respect, all hell broke loose during that war if you were alive. And so the war memorial was put up. And I remember I had some business in Washington, D.C., the next year, and I went, and after the business, I stayed with a friend who I had grown up with who was living in Washington. He said, we've got to go see the Vietnam War Memorial. I said, yes, I'm so excited to see it. And he goes, we have to see it at night, at night. I go, why? He goes, trust me, we have to go at night. So we went at night. The Vietnam War Memorial is unlike any other memorial because all it is is granite stones, black granite, with the names of the over 50,000 men and women who died in the war from the United States. It's 52 plus, they keep adding because of MIAs, et cetera, and they find things and all the rest. But there's 52,000 names on this memorial. 
If you've been there, it is amazing. So we go there, it's 1983 or 1984, we go there, it's nighttime, and it was the most surreal thing. The lighting, people are there crying, there's whole family searching for their son or their daughter, their father's name. It was just amazing. And then they'd take paper and then they would scratch the name, you know, with pencil so they would have the name of it, you know, on onion skin paper and the whole thing and flowers and crying. And it was just, you know, at the Lincoln Memorial, people are quiet. At the Washington Memorial, they're quiet. But at the Vietnam Memorial, then there were tears and crying and just connecting. And I'm watching this whole thing. And then they had a, a phone book size book. Do you know what a phone book is? the white pages of a phone, not the yellow pages, but the white pages of every name. And I looked up my name. There were like five William Mitchells who died. I'm like, you know, you just get so caught up in this. And, and why? Because I grew up with the war. It was a war, the first war on television every night at six o'clock. And it was in color. My entire growing up was every night seeing this war. The Tet Offensive, Cameron Bay, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, the carpet bombing in Laos, the Paris peace talks, the Hanoi Hilton, Jane Fonda, Joan Baez, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Woodstock came out of the Vietnam War, the Summer of Love, all these, remember that? Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, and then ultimately the Watergate scandal and Richard Nixon. These are all just historic footnotes to all of us now, but back then it defined our country. And so we left and moved on and saw some of the other memorials. Well, this year, Elizabeth and I went to Washington for some meetings, and I said, let's go early and see. I hadn't really seen the World War II Museum that had been more recently built, not lately, but since I had been there. And so we went to all the, the museums along the mall, or the monuments, excuse me. And of course, I love the Lincoln Memorial, so we're there, we're reading all the texts, and beautiful. And then I said, we gotta go to the Vietnam War Memorial. And I remembered where it was, and we went to it. Nobody there, no crying, no people, nobody writing their name, you know, scratching for their father's name or their, now their grandfather's name, nobody. And then I watched people go back and forth and back and forth and I realized it was nothing but a walkway between the hotels and the Lincoln Memorial. It was a passageway and every so often people would stop, I, I stood there in awe of this moment. And I would just watch people look and saw the 50,000 names and just kind of kept walking and moved on. And even for me, it didn't hold meaning because I've been two generations away from a child when I was worried. Back then, by the way, winning the lottery meant you went to war. Nowadays, winning the lottery is the Powerball. Back then, right, guys? Some of you won the lottery and ended up in Vietnam. It was not a winning thing. Everything was different. Why do I say that? Because the Vietnam War Memorial takes context or it's just a bunch of words on the wall. There's nothing else. I mean, there's a little statue across the way uh, there, which is really neat, but there, it's just words. Can I tell you, Second John is just words unless you know the context. And none of us get the context on reading it because we think it's about loving one another. 
and let us look at the context, can we? First of all, it starts and says, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And it ends in verse 13, the children of your elect sister greet you, verse Verse 1 and verse 13. Now, who on earth is this? Well, we know the elder is John. And I used to think that John would never use his name because he was humble. You know, just humble John, right? That's what we always heard. I always grew up with that. John never used his name because he was always humble. It's always the disciple or it's this. And he was a very humble man. There's no doubt about it. But that is not why he put the word elder there instead of the word John. In the other Uh, letters, we see Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to the Romans. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to the Galatians, right? There's this sense of authority that comes. But we need to realize that the book of 2 John and 3 John were not written at the same time as Romans, Galatians, etc. Those are the times of the Acts of the Apostle. Those are the times when you read the book of Acts, these epistles were being written at the same time. The acts of the apostles are over. Paul has been killed. Peter has been hung upside down. Matthew has been strapped and killed. Thomas is long gone. He was killed in India. Name them all. They're all dead, except John. And persecution has come to the church. And the church has to go underground. Before there was some persecution just because they didn't understand the church, but the church was growing and growing and growing. And now it's sometime in and around 70 AD, the early growth of the church is over and they had to go underground. I believe that the words were used so that if the courier was caught, the Romans would not know what this was about. The elder, the elder is a name you can give anyone who's the head of the family. I'm the elder of my family. I'm the head of my family, right? You might be the elder. And to the chosen or the elect lady, well, that's the head of another family, right? It's a family guy writing to another family and her children. The reality is this. It's John the apostle writing to another church. The elect lady is a church. We don't know which church. It was probably a daughter church outside of Ephesus that John helped start. And the children are the congregation. He's writing this not to a lady and her five children or three children. He's writing it to a church and the people in that church. But he did not want them to be compromised or his church to be compromised. God forbid this letter was intercepted because it's just a letter from a head of a family to another head of the family, which is very normal. And you even see this in verse 13. What does it say there? The children of your elect sister greet you. Well, who's the elect sister? That's John's church. And who are the children of John's church? They are the congregation. The congregation of my church is saying hello and God bless you to your church. Do you see that? And this is the context. The context is that they are in persecution. It is not just a nice letter written by one of the best men in the first century to this lady and her family. 
It is written from a persecuted church and a persecuted disciple, now an apostle, to another persecuted church. And amazingly, if you know your church history, of all the 12 original disciples, take out Judas, Mattathias was added, so the 12 plus one, back to 12, all of them were killed for their faith except the apostle John. He's the only one who died a natural death, although he was persecuted and he was exiled and he was, a lot of bad things happened to him, but he died of old age. He is the only disciple original left when this was being written. And he's writing it to the people. This is a pretty serious letter. That's context number one. Context number two is this, is that the church, it's not up on the slide, but the church across the world was being infiltrated by people who did not believe in Jesus Christ. They had no sense of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that in a minute. So there was persecution from the outside, the Romans, and there was persecution from the inside, let's call that heresy. That is the context of this letter. Now let's look at the letter, and there's four things I want to bring out in it if I could. Starting in verse four and five, number one, he talks about walking in truth. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children, that's the parishioners, the believers, walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now he uses the word God in here, he uses the word Jesus, but he also uses the word Father as well, because I think, again, he could have said God, he could have said, you know, the Almighty One, but he chose to use Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, probably the, you know, the congregation, not as though I were writing a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning. In other words, every time you've seen me, you have heard me say that we are to love one another. Walking in truth and loving one another come together. Some people go, oh, I walk in the truth. Now, walking in the truth requires something. What does it require? Movement. There is movement in our faith. We believe in Christ, but we also walk towards Christ. Do you see that? We talk about growing in Christ, he uses the word walking in Christ. So I believe in Jesus Christ, and because I believe in Jesus Christ, I am a child of the king, I am in the new kingdom, we understand that. But also, I am walking in Christ. There is movement, and he calls that walking in the truth, walking in love, walking in obedience, whatever, there's this movement. And the question I have for you, the first thing is this, is there movement in your faith? Is there movement in your belief? Because here's the thing, there could be movement to the bad because there's heresy out there. And in this particular church, there was heresy in the church. Many of you know who know Elizabeth and me really well, we're not big into TVs, okay? It's not an indictment on you if you love TV, we're just not a big in TV. So we move into a condominium a couple years ago and they give you, what do they give you? All the TV channels, right? We never had any of that before. Can I just tell you the worst thing is Christian television? I'm just going to tell you right now, not every single preacher and speaker is bad on Christian television, 
But I actually, I, I, I never knew what it, whenever it goes, oh, you got remote control and you click around. We had no TV, so how do you have remote control? So, but I've done it a little since we moved in, and there is real heresy out there. I'm telling you, if you watch Christian television, be careful. There's some good. David Jeremiah is great, and some of those guys are really great. But let me tell you, there is garbage on that stuff. It is nothing short of from the pit, what they're saying on, in the name of Jesus, in the name of prophecy, in the name of God. It is bad. It is in the church as well as outside the church. So just be careful. But here's the thing, is if you're just standing by yourself in your faith and not walking towards Christ, you might miss it. If we're walking, we go, this is where we're heading. All these songs we sing that Clay picks is a movement towards Christ, a movement towards the cross, a movement towards understanding more our faith. One of the most discouraging things I get when I ask people to share their testimony to me is this. I'll go, uh, they go, yeah, I'm a believer. Or they usually say, I'm a Christian. I go, well, tell me about being a Christian. And they'll explain in great detail how they came to Christ, now let's say they're 40 years old, when they came to Christ at 11 years old. Great detail, it was at a camp, a vacation Bible school, my mom led me, blah, 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 all this long thing. And I'll go, okay, that was when you were 11, you're 40, we're missing 29 years here, tell me more about your faith. And they go, oh yeah, and I've been a Christian ever since. I go, there's more to this than that. That's believing in Christ, but you got to have walk towards Christ as well. And then you talk to someone else and you go, tell me about your Christian faith. They go, you know, this week I was reading in the Psalms, blah, 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 blah. And I was talking to my coworker about Jesus and she doesn't believe, but you know what? I keep praying for it. I'm thinking, wow. I go, when did you come to Christ? Oh, I was 11 years old. It was really neat. My mom led me to Christ, but, and they keep talking about today. Why? Because they're walking in their faith. My friends, if your faith is about when you were 11 years old, thank God, but if that's all it is, you are missing something here. You don't have the context of understanding that it's a day-to-day walk with Jesus Christ. It, it is. And we need to move towards something. You're not moving towards your salvation. You've been saved. You are a believer, but what are you doing afterwards? And he's saying, move Move towards the truth. Number two, in verse six and seven, he does say, obey his commandments. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. Now he says, there are many deceivers who have gone out into the world that do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is important, and I don't need to get into all the Greek names of all these different movements of people that came along in the first century, but there was this group of people who said, Jesus Christ never came in the flesh. There was a man named Jesus, no doubt. There was no, everybody believed that. That was no big deal. But Christ, who was, in their view, the God part of the Jesus Christ, he never came. Christ is up here, Jesus came to earth. It's heresy. We're gonna be celebrating in a few weeks God becoming man and dwelling among us, right? 
That is the core belief of what we believe, that God became a human and dwelt among us. And then, of course, all that he did for us is what we talk about at Easter time and throughout the year. But there was a group that said, God didn't come down. There was a good man named Jesus, and he brought in a good movement. It's called Christianity or being a followers of the way. And they were teaching heresy. And he's saying, don't do it. You need to stay with the truth because there are deceivers out there that you're going to follow. And let me tell you, it is amazing how many people follow deceivers because the deceivers are swift of tongue. They're very persuasive. And let me just say this, and this is why we're very Christ-centered in this church. I only have the second and third John in my hand, but here's the whole Bible, is if somebody teaches and it doesn't follow this book, don't follow them. You gotta follow the book. Don't follow the person. That's why I've said this many, many times. God forbid a Christian leader falls or fails. The book doesn't fail. The leader failed, but the book doesn't fail. The Bible is God's written word. Jesus Christ is God's living word. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It is true. We need to follow this. And if I ever say anything that doesn't follow this, follow this and don't follow me. I'm telling you that. So when you're hearing people saying things that are just a little off, whether and we're seeing this all over nowadays, people are just kind of going off on little tangents and doing this. I'm saying, may we need to walk in the truth. The truth is this. Let's walk in it. Let's submit to it. Let's accept it. Let's be it. And that is an action where too. Accepting something, there's action to it. Submitting to something is action to it. It's not submission like this. It's submitting like this. I submit to the Bible and to God's word, and we need to obey his commands, not just because he said obey his commands, because there are people out there that are giving you the wrong things, and you got a choice. Are you going to go that way or this way? Number three, in verse eight, pretty simple first two words, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him or her into your house or give them any greeting for whoever greets them takes part in their wicked works. Now, again, we need to take context into play here. Back then, there were no hotels, no motels, no hostels. So when people passed through a town, they would stay with other people. Hospitality was very important to the early church. We see that in Romans. We see that in 1 Corinthians. We see that in uh, Galatians and Ephesians. There's importance to hospitality. And what he's saying is there's these itinerant people coming around who do not have the word, but they're using the words of Christ without the belief and making it up and they're staying in your home. And what he is saying is be very careful in who you bring into your home. You see, right now, I could sit afterwards and argue with you and I'd be fine. I bring you into my home, I've brought you into a very intimate place. I feed you, we talk, we're sitting there, relaxed. Our backs are back on couches or back then they were on 
pillows, whatever it may be, there's a relaxed sense. And in that sense, you can be persuaded easier than now. Just be careful is what he's saying. Guard the truth. Watch yourselves. It is nothing, you know, people are saying so many odd things. When it says guard the truth, what he's saying is don't be embarrassed about the truth. You know, what you believe is very different than what most people believe, by the way. Going back to my childhood, what I believed and what a lot of people believe was very close. Not everybody, of course, but it was a, there was a consensus in our nation, at least, that was somewhat like this, right? And then what has happened? It's like this. So if I want to stay close to the consensus, I have to do the moving, because the consensus has moved. And so am I gonna move with it so that I can stay relevant, stay true to this or true to that, or do I stay true to the Bible? And you've gotta make that choice because it is with you every single day. And the problem is, is that it used to be quite obvious. You could see truth from non-truth very easily, but nowadays it's so nuanced that you can't unless you're really looking out for it. And so as a person of God, a child of the king, a believer, a person in the kingdom of God, you need to be careful. You need to watch yourselves and you need to guard the truth. Now, the thing is this, there there was a book written years ago, Who Speaks for God, a great book. Chuck Colson wrote it years ago. God speaks for God, by the way. I repeat what God does. I don't speak for God. God speaks for God. God is big enough to handle himself. And many of us feel we have to protect God. God does not need my protection. God can protect himself. But we need to protect ourselves with what God has done. There is a difference there. And please be careful because the truth, as it is proclaimed out there, And sometimes even in the church, we do our best not to have it proclaimed in this church, but we have a thousand people, so things are gonna be said. I have people go, boy, in our small group, somebody said this really bad thing, okay? That does happen. Guard the truth, just go, you know, that's not right. I love you to death, you're great, but this is not the truth. Don't be afraid to confront the truth in your small group if somebody says something that's not right, as opposed to going, oh my goodness, the church is, no, just, confront the truth, but do it in love, right? Paul tells us how to do it, and John tells us in other places, do it in love. Love one another, walk in truth. You just don't walk in truth and knock everybody over, and you just don't love everybody without the truth. It takes both. Why? And here's the end. This is, it's a beautiful thing here. Oh, by the way, let me just say, people ask me this all the time. Should I let in meaning you, should you let in people in your home that knock on your door to speak about a faith you don't believe in? That's like the the question. And I have talked to so many leaders, I've read about it, and everybody says something different. Can I just tell you what I do? I don't let them in. I don't let them in. Sometimes I'll talk on the front. Now I live in a condominium, they can't come in, but for 
of 40 years, we lived in a home, and they'd come to the front door. If I was in the mood and it was the right time, I would stand in the front and talk to them. But I've never let them in my home. Not that I'm afraid that they'll do anything, you know, to my personhood, but I just don't want something to be said that at that time my children would hear and not know that it's not the truth or something else. And I, w- I just, the home is a place. You know, now, when you bring believers in, or you can bring non-believers in, we do that all the time, but not the ones that are preaching a different gospel. That's just me. You may want to bring them in. I'm fine that you bring them in. Just be careful when you bring them in. Just be careful because persuasion and just because, and then people go, well, they said this and they said that and 144,000 this and the end times that. And I'm going, you probably should have never had them in. But anyway, you do what you want to do, but just pray and be careful. Here's the other thing. You're never going to argue anyone into the kingdom. I learned that a long time ago. I used to be a great arguer. I am good at arguing. I'm good at, you're not gonna argue people in the kingdom. The truth and love and the spirit of God, that's what's getting them into the kingdom and then their belief. It's not me arguing them. So what you have sometimes is people just always giving you questions. Questions, questions, questions. And as soon as you answer that question, they have another question. As soon as they answer that question, you have another question. I stop answering people's questions. They go, you're a pastor. You have to answer my questions. I go, no, I don't. (laughs) Because there's a thing called an honest question, and there's a thing called a dishonest question. Honest question is, I'm doubting, I'm struggling, and all those A dishonest question is kind of a point the finger at the Bible or at God or at Christians or at the church for the last 2,000 years and why this and why that. It's like, I'll pray for you, I'll love you, but I am not going to those, because as soon as you answer it, they ask another. As soon as you answer that, they ask another. As soon as you answer that, it's like, answering questions is not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel, amen? If I can get an amen out of that. I'm not, I'm not a Baptist, but every once in a while you need an amen. I miss not being a Baptist. Sometimes I want to be a good Pentecostal and get a hallelujah, and sometimes I want to be a good Baptist and get an amen. Verse 12. Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Again, context, why? Because he doesn't want to get them in trouble. You think he's lazy or, you know, he just can't write anymore? No, he does not want to bring up the key things so that somebody could intercept this letter. He wants to do it in person. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Two words to remember, hope and joy. There is hope for the future. This is just a little inkling. Think about it. Here's a guy who's been persecuted. Here's a guy who's every one of his close, dear friends has been killed for what he is teaching. He's teaching. He's alive. Every one of his close friends who did the same thing were all killed. Think of that. And he says, I'm hoping to come and teach you and talk to you and be with you. That's an incredible thing. And why? Because it will bring joy to you and it will bring joy to me. There is a joy in this. See, we read joy and we go, 
Oh, yeah, of course, there's got to be joy. That's like in Philippians, right? Rejoice evermore and all these things all through the Bible. Yes, but this is in a context of pure persecution. Everyone's getting killed, burned at the stake, hung upside down, drawn and quartered, and he's saying, I have a hope to see you, and it will bring me joy. And I ask you, do you have hope in your life? Is there a hope in your faith? Is there a hope in your walk? Is there a hope in your future? I got to tell you, we as believers need to take what John has said and go, nothing we do is as bad as this. Nothing we have is as bad as this. If he can hope, we should hope. And if we hope, there will be joy. Joy comes as you hope. There's joy that comes. It's all through the Bible. Read the book of Psalms. Bad things happen. Joy comes in the morning. Um, lamentations, great is his faithfulness. All these things are so important. I'm here to say we're beginning the Christmas season. It starts in a couple of days, the Advent season. We're going to be celebrating it. We're going to have a, a great time on up on the rooftop, kind of a, a citywide celebration. Then on Christmas Eve, we'll be here to celebrate the carols and the songs and do it with all kind of lights and sound and incredible things. And then Christmas is on Sunday this year. So we're going to have a Christmas service. We're going to, I know many of you won't come and that's okay, but we're going to have it across the street in the chapel. Anybody wants to come, it's just going to be Clay and me and Elizabeth leading it. And we're going to have just a small service of thanksgiving to God for what he did when he sent his son Jesus to earth. Because that gives us hope and that gives us joy. Let's pray together.